Mark Sekula and his amazing dad are the lovely, lovely gentlemen behind Roof UK, which is a company that basically customizes amazing cars and fundamentally allows them to be practical and enjoyable for the everyday person who wants to enjoy the thrill of a supercar but also not hurt their bum in the process. And what an amazing company. But one of the things that I absolutely loved about Roof, just looking into it, was the fact that it's more than just a company. It's a community of people who love their cars and also love what the company is doing and love their mission. And for me, I want to speak to Mark about how he's done that, but also how he's managed to build this amazing, amazing relationship with his dad both of whom have achieved so much in their life and continue to achieve so much as they as they progress through their career and you know it can be so hard to you know work with family and also keep things intact keep the connection keep the love keep the bond going but also keep the business going as well and you know how many times have we heard families struggling with that balance but what mark has shown and is continuing to show is that it can all be done. So I sat down with Mark on this lovely, lovely podcast about his life, his journey, the relationship he has with his dad and how he's managed to achieve so much at quite a young age, actually, to be fair. So sit back, enjoy and hope you manage to get something quite meaningful from this podcast interview. The thing that Porsche have managed to achieve very well with the 911 is the consistency of it, of it of it being such a practical car to use daily usually even in the failure there'll be an opportunity that comes out of that and the lesson learned from failing is worth more than just constant success because you'll build yeah. your success out of that mark welcome to the podcast man hey thanks mommy good to meet you finally as well we actually have a mutual connection, I think, uh, Sean Sean Huber, I guess. But yeah, he's a good friend. Um, and obviously, he's got his uh, custom Lamborghini project that he's working on. He's doing a fantastic job. Um, he's got good people supporting him with that. Um, and it's it's good quality as well. I mean, what he's built, is, it's, it's, he's using best carbon suppliers and stuff like that, so... Good luck to him. Yeah. Really good luck to him. Really inspirational guy. I mean, I, I was introduced to him by Chiro. I'm guessing you know Chiro. Yeah, I've, I, I, we don't know each other very well personally, but we have spoken a couple of times. Um, and it's funny, I think, because I'd said to you previously, um, there's a guy that connects all of us. He's a guy, uh, a Dutch friend of mine called Emil Ronhar, um, who actually just started his own business, but he's a fantastic networker. He's one of these guys that can really see how people can work well together, you know, where the, where to connect the dots. But I'm going to give him a little plug, actually, because he uh, started a business and they produce these ceramic driver's mugs. Oh, wow. That's cool. That is amazing. He kindly sent me a couple of these for Christmas. Uh, oh, wow. Because I introduced him to the factory, to Estonia Roof, um, and she said, yep. Please, can you can you make us you know do a product run for us? Um, so they've got the CTR, CTR two, and CTR three, and they're the the artwork on them is is hand drawn. Um, I'm not sure the exact process, but he actually might be somebody interesting for you to speak to. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm always looking for people to speak to, man. So yeah, definitely. I mean, um, for those who don't know, um, you know, on the in, on the rare occasion, who 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 Rufar, what what you guys do? Tell us about about how it all started, what you guys do, and uh, yeah, just give us a, a brief overview. Okay, well, my father Richard and I are the UK operation um, for Roof. We basically work as an extension of the factory in Pfaffenhausen, in just outside of Munich. Um, we've been doing this now since 2016. Um, Roof, as a business, were originally established in 1939 by the current owner of Roof, Alois Roof Jr., his father, Alois Roof Sr., um, and they, uh, to, to cut a long story short, they were effectively working on very early Porsches. Um, Alois and Alois um, saw an opportunity to take what they thought was already a good car um, in, a, in the average Porsche 911 um, and tweak and modify and, and, and try and extract some more some more ability from the car to make it a more dynamic and engaging car to drive. Um, this really started to gain real global appeal in the late eighties with the original CTR, which had the nickname of the yellow bird it was the fastest production car in the world until 1994. Um, and it really, for them, they just went leaps and bounds became kind of the Porsche engineering guys Obviously, there's a there's a lot of backdate specialists now, um, some really famous ones. Um, but for for Roof, their focus is in the engineering, um, and where they are today as a business is they will take your nine six four or your nine nine three or whichever nine eleven variant you have, um, and they will rebuild it or you know make it a better car for you. Um, but really where they're moving forward is uh, 2017, they launched the CTR anniversary, which is a homage to the original CTR. Um, this was at Geneva Motor Show. And the impressive thing about this is that it doesn't use any Porsche components. It's not based on a Porsche chassis. Traditionally, oh, wow. our cars are based on a Porsche 911 chassis. This has its own carbon tub. It's full carbon shell, full carbon wings, doors, everything, which makes it incredibly lightweight. So they focused on really having this kind of optimal um, sweet spot with the car rather than saying, OK, well, you know, we're just going to make a 1500 brake 911 and have the fastest 911 in the world. They saw that the market was moving on and we needed to really do something different. So it's a bit of a masterstroke, really, from Alois and Estonia and the team to to have the kind of foresight and think, well, if we have our own tarp, our own carbon tarp, our own carbon chassis or monocoque, we can build whatever we like. So we're not really then beholden to, to Porsche and what they do in the future. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of the issues now that you would get um, with with modern cars, especially as we're going electric is ECUs, programming, um, the amount of electrics now in these cars and computers compared to uh, 930-gen G-series, uh, 993s, 964s is completely, it's a different league. 
Um, you know, if you want to take a, a Turbo S now, a 902 Turbo S, and you want to start modifying that, it's, it's hard work. But they are doing that with um, Mark Gembala or Mark's um, Martian project, um, which is like a 911 Safari uh, 902, also based on a Turbo S, a 992 Turbo S. And Roof are um, modifying the drivetrain of the car. But I think for us as a business moving forward, it's to focus on the, the classics and the new stuff now in that, okay, these are all roof chassis, roof fin number cars. Again, because they are a licensed manufacturer by the German authorities, they their cars carry their own VIN numbers, um, which gives them an advantage over many other people in that that sphere. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's going to be interesting for us the next the next five ten years to see really where this goes. Um, people are very aware of roof; um, they're aware of what they do. Um, but I, I think as you as you introduced, it's not everybody does know, you know, and, and sometimes people are into just certain other brands and they don't, they're not interested in other things and that's fine. Um, I'm not just Porsche centric because, you know, I think as I'd said to you before, with my background, with my father sourcing vehicles for clients, we used to have a traditional dealer set up and we moved away from that because we could see that times were changing um, and we became an international business. So we were helping people in the Far East, um, in the States that, that had high profile cars. Um, and it just for us, it, it just went in a different direction. So I think I am not particularly focused on one brand with cars. Um, yeah, yeah. But I am obviously roof centric. In that, yeah, I have well, to be focused yeah. I mean, on those guys, and obviously support before them. Before going into you and your kind of grow, in, in, in terms of you growing up and, and your kind of experiences, I want to just kind of touch on that point about pivoting. And um, I think a lot of businesses struggle to kind of pivot away from their main source of revenue. I guess. Um, what's your thoughts on that, and and how have you managed to do it in a way whereby I guess. Um, I mean, from the outset, it seems quite seamless, you know. Um, but um, what were the challenges when you were looking to do that? And um, have you managed to kind of overcome those in some way? Well, sometimes it's circumstance. So it could be something else from outside of your bubble affects your business, like we're having with COVID at the moment. You know, that's kind of, that's destroyed a lot of people's businesses. But at the same time, it's also created a lot of opportunity, opportunity that people didn't see before. So I think for us, it was uh, a natural transition to move in the way we did. But sometimes what you find is the connections you're making as you're growing up and you're moving forward and you're doing various dealings or having various dealings with different people, you find that so as long as you don't close doors and you, you just keep moving forward, Sometimes these things from the past can come back, come back round full circle. Um, we found that, you know, some markets overseas that we were working with for a while, opportunities stopped there because they had different import laws and duties and restrictions that came in. And then you fast forward 10 years and suddenly it's all, everybody's doing business there again. So I think circumstance, as I said, um, Drive as well and, and passion. If there's an opportunity, if you're, you know, you wake up one day and you think, I've had this idea, um, is, okay, you know, how am I going to get to that point? 
Because I think everybody has ideas, but do you have the conviction to, to follow through? And even if you do, how are you going to get there? There's got to be some sort of strategy. Um, so I've found that, I mean, my, my dad is, is now more risk averse, but we work well together as a team because he is kind of like looking after me as I am with him in that I can see some opportunities that maybe he doesn't spot. He, he sees some opportunities that I don't spot. So I think I've been fortunate to grow up with, with somebody that, that is aware of what's going on and has his own experiences anyway, has 30 years on me that, you know, a lot of that stuff, you can't buy it. It's just, you know, I, I grew up with my dad being self-employed for the majority of my life. So watching him, not from afar, because you're, you're almost involved in it anyway, because you're living under the same roof, you're a kid, you're, you're taking in a lot of the emotion anyway, from when things are good and things are bad. Um, you start to develop this sixth sense as well, which I think did help me from a young age in business, deciding at university that I wanted to just work with my dad at first because he presented me. I'd had been working with him part-time anyway while I was studying, but he presented me a, an opportunity to, to go in with him in the family business. Um, and it just really for me went from there. I didn't have any ambition to, to go and work in banking industry or, or, you know, finance or any other sector, really. For me, it was, okay, what do I love? I love cars. So <laughs> I wanted to just do something with cars. Generally, I mean, um, in, in, in and terms that's, of that's how um, I got involved. pursuing other opportunities, um, do you ever sort of wonder or feel a bit scared about the impact of pursuing those opportunities at the risk of the core essence of a company? Because I think, I think often as a, as an owner of a business, you kind of become so emotionally invested in, in what the company's core business was at that particular point in time. And you think that diverging into other areas might take away from that. Was that ever a concern for you? Yes. I think because when we were working for so long with certain markets and then the game moved on or didn't leave us behind, but again, like I said, because of uh, external influences from governments and whatever, you you can think, oh no, you know, what are we going to do now? Where are we going to go next? Or what are we going to, what are we going to do? It's, you find that some people tend to just stare at the problem for too long and then they're not thinking, they're not taking a step back, looking at the bigger picture and thinking, okay, well, what things have I done in the past that work? What things do I know that other people do that work? And what ideas do I have that are independent of those two things that I feel like if we try this, it may work? Um, you have to really just go and, and think, okay, well, I'm going to choose one of those three things. Either I'm going to go back and do something I was doing before, move forward, or try something completely different. Sometimes you can try something completely different and it catches you by surprise. It is successful. And people are like, where did that come from? Um, particularly if you are thinking outside of the box. Um, but I think if you're, you know, a lot of people tend to just follow a traditional business model where it's, okay, well, these guys do it like this. It works. Let's just do the same thing. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is you're not 
as long as you're you're aware of the mistakes they've made in the past, which is the difficult thing to understand because you can look at somebody else's business and think, oh, it's fantastic. They're, they're doing so well and whatever. You have no idea the blood, sweat, tears, legal issues, headaches they've had, difficult customers. They've had the processes they've had to go through to get to where they are. So I think, you know, it's 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 not an easy thing to, to do. But I think, you, um, yeah, I think you've got to choose one of those look at three things. When I hear about the different markets that you've, delved into um and the various things you've done what what always strikes me is the sense of community and the sense that everyone kind of feels like there's there's a bit of them in the brand right um i want to go to a little bit more detail and, and how have you managed to create this sense of community because it just seems like you know um it it's very much people kind of um that it, that there's an element of good work, you know, really, really good work. Um, but how do you manage to kind of create that kind of sense of community within within the brand? Well, I think that the credit goes to Alois in Estonia because they very much um, are big supporters and believers in the family business model and, and clients becoming part of Roof Family. Um, they have very, very close relationships with their clients. Um, some of them are, as you can imagine, extremely famous, successful people. And then there are just more average guys that, that are just car nuts, you know, and car nerds. And they have a very welcoming and uh, non-judgmental stance. Um, you'll find that Alois will always give people time. You know, um, we, we'll be at a show like Geneva or whatever. And he's somebody that everybody wants to speak to, but he's, he's never judging. Okay. Well, is this person, who is this person? You know, what, what business can they bring me or, or are they media accredited? It's just, okay, this, this chap wants to talk to me about cars and he's an enthusiast and he knows he wants to know about roof. He will give them all of the time, which is something that I have always found is extremely admirable and it's, it's taught me a few lessons as well, I think, because when I was younger, I used to be far more dismissive, you know, would, would, would be thinking not in an, not, not in an arrogant way, but just, well, uh, you know, is this person going to help me make any money? If not, then why do I need to know them? Because you never know down the line, that person may be at the beginning of their journey, or they might be about to come into a load of inheritance, or you, you genuinely have no idea, right? So you, you have to, you've always got to treat people fairly, equally, um, with respect as well. And if somebody wants to talk to me about cars, um, particularly roof, obviously, I'm here. You know, I, I don't shirk away. I don't hide. I don't think I'm only interested in speaking to certain people. It's, you can call me, you know, you can drop me an email. My, my details are there. Um, if you've got any questions, you can ask me and I'll, I'll always try my best to answer them. So I think that's something that I've learned from them and how, again, the roof community is very, it is closely knit because they keep those relationships strong. Um, and I think for a business that's really been now working on these cars since, since the mid eighties, late seventies, even to have connections to some of those original customers still and to have them keep coming back and supporting you, the brand, the company, but also Roof supporting them, 
in helping them what, to, to get what they want or whatever is a testament to them, really. It's a credit to the roofs and the team and all of the team. Because I, I think, you I know, think it's, kind of brand it, is, it is a team effort. What, 20, 30 years, you know, is, 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 is amazing. 40 years, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it, it takes something more than just a great product. It takes relationships. It takes pr- clear principles and values that drive everything that you do is, is such an important point. Um, I want to just kind of touch on a little bit about your kind of story and obviously, you know, um, this amazing relationship you have with your dad and um, how that kind of manifested in terms of your career. Um, talk us through a little bit about early days growing up and um, I guess your journey into into the company. Okay, so um, I grew up in a village in, in Kent. Um in the UK, obviously, because if this is an international audience, they're going to have no idea where that is. Um, and it was a, I went to a village primary school, um, made some good friends there, taught me a few good lessons growing up. Then I went to a grammar school, so in Kent. And it was while I was at, while I was at school, um, my dad was a marketing consultant originally. So he was in the IT and um, computer games industry. But he always had a passion for cars, like always had this huge passion for cars. When I was growing up, he'd always have a nice car. He'd always be, you know, he'd have this car. And then a few months later, he'd be looking at the Auto Trader magazine thinking, right, I need to change it or or top marks or whatever. Um, So I kind of caught that bug because I would always be then interested in what he was wanting to buy and whatever. So um, he basically in the... Late 90s, 97, 98, because of his IT background, he, he could see that there, there was an opportunity with um, presentation in terms of, okay, you could have your own website and present these cars properly because Auto Trader back in the day was a magazine that was regional, completely different to the website. They had started the website, but it was very much tiny little advert, tiny little pictures. So my dad was thinking, well, okay, I can advertise an auto trader, but in auto trader, I'm going to put an advert for my business, the car spy. And that's going to have the cars that I buy and sell on there. So he had the, he went through this period of transition where he decided to buy a few cars. I remember going to Blackbush car auction with him or Enfield, dodgy places that I felt at the time I was like, Oh my God, you know, what is this? But it was great. And he bought these cars and he had a way of presenting them that meant that he kind of came from nowhere. He didn't have any reputation. And because of his levels of presentation in terms of, okay, well, I'm going to put like 20 pictures of the car on there, which is not, which then you just didn't get. You know, they were tiny, rubbish, little pixelated photos. High-res pictures. Yes, it was quite slow to to for all the images to to load and stuff in the days of dial-up. But because people were genuinely interested and they wanted to see, they would spend the time. And we found we had guys from like Scotland, Northern Ireland, all over like phoning. Hey, you know, I found your website, found this calf sale. Because again, he knew how Google AdWords works, AdWords worked, this kind of thing. And it just went from there. But, and that kind of like transitioned into more of a traditional car dealer setup where we were working from we moved to a bigger house with with land space for cars we were working from there then we had a storage setup in harlow 
over in Essex, um, just because it w- would work well for us there in terms of Enfield auction was down the road and stuff. And I remember kind of driving from just near Seven Oaks to Enfield all the time. You know, people wanted to come and see cars and I used to hate it, but it, it did kind of instill me with the good, with a good work ethic because my dad just used to make me do it. You know, when I was a young kid, again, go and clean the cars, go and do this. And there wasn't really anything in it for me then. I guess he'd give me the odd, you know, fiver or whatever. But it was more about understanding how to to build something, how to get there, the, the hard work it takes, you know, being tired, physically tired, dealing with people, you know, driving 30, 40 miles to meet somebody in a car and they don't show up, you know, this kind of thing. And you, you, you're angry, but you, you learn to take those hits and stuff. And it seems silly. And in the grand scheme of life, it really is because there are people that have to deal with real problems. But it's all these little things that add up that when you then get to where I am now, you kind of think, yeah, you know, some people are flaky. Some people are whatever. You just you just move on. You don't take it personally. Because that's another thing I used to do when I was younger. I used to take mm. things personally. Criticism, if somebody let you down, you know, falling out with people or friends. Now you just think, okay, it, it, you know, you give people a chance. Um, but yeah, so from that, it was the mid-2000s. Um, I was working with him um, and I went to university, was in the middle of doing, finishing my degree. And I just said to that, when I'm finished, that's it. I'm, I don't want to do anything else. I just want to do this. Um, because I think I was a, still obviously a relatively young guy then in my early 20s. The, I could see the money was good. Not not obscene or anything, but it was an opportunity for me straight away to earn money, you know, to just move forward, earn money, build something with my dad. And it really got to 2007 just before the the financial crisis where I remember we started to spot some patterns and we could see that the market was changing and, and people were suddenly, you know, we were having guys because we'd upped our game at this point. We were then dealing in Lamborghinis. These were all used, but Lamborghinis, Ferraris, higher end stuff. So really were building our business up. Um, we could see that, I mean, I was, I remember I was 23 or 22 years old. I had this chap come to see us and he was the same age as me. And he'd started a building company a couple of months before that. And we had a yellow uh, Lamborghini Gallardo e-gear. And this car was up for £100,000, let's say. And this guy was like, I want finance, blah, 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 blah. And I think, I think from memory... He paid like a thousand pound deposit on a credit card. His finance was approved straight away. And literally the next day he came back, drove off in this Lamborghini for a thousand pounds a month or whatever. And I remember I said to my dad, so there's something's not right. Something's going to go wrong. It wasn't with that car. It just became so easy for people to just get whatever they wanted to. We were getting, as I said, kids, you know, people that, and again, no disrespect to anybody, but people you're thinking, not sure about this you know i don't think this person should be buying this like e46 m3 or whatever you know mm-hmm. the, the, yeah at the time it's like 25 30k but they they weren't i didn't i wasn't sure about you know how this was gonna add up and 
lo and behold, as we got closer to the crisis, we started to get calls from customers that we'd sold cars to that were, hey, you know, I need to get rid of my car. I'm thinking, okay, um, can you sell it? I need as much back as possible. This was the thing. Because they were obviously heavily financed, these cars, yeah. small deposits, so small equity. Um, and a lot of these guys were, were panicking. And again, a lot of these guys were in the banking industry and whatever. So we could see, we could smell it, you know, something about yeah. to go massively wrong. And obviously it did. But the opportunity came just after that because I said to my dad, look, you know, I remember we were having this conversation and we need a different, we need a different point of attack. We need, we need, we need to do this differently now. Because we were getting so many people phone us saying, can you sell my 996? Can you do this? Can you do that? We were thinking, well, why have all this money tied up? Why have a stocking loan? Why have these overheads when all we're doing is just, is just moving one asset to someone else or whatever? And I did this. It was a, a chap in Tunbridge uh, in Kent. And he had a, a 996 turbo and he wanted a 997 turbo. And he... He called me because I had these, I used to put these adverts on piston heads and they were basically fishing adverts. It was like, do you want to sell your Porsche? Do you want to sell your whatever? And they used to work really well. You can't do it anymore. Um, you have to go into like some special section and you're just lost with hundreds of adverts. But my adverts were in the classifieds in with cars for sale. So people used to call me and say, hey, you know, would you buy the car? And I'd always offer to buy. But my offer to buy was always a trade price because I've got to buy that car. I've got to prep it, got to warranty it, that on margin, all this stuff. So I could see that there was this brokerage business model that start to work very well with the cars. And I knew as a youngster, there were people right at the very, very high end operating like that anyway, because you weren't trading with 50 million pounds of cars. No one would do that. You know, no one really had that money as a business to just say, yeah, we're just going to buy this and we're going to buy that. We're going to buy an F40. I mean, okay, don't get me wrong. There, there were guys like Tom Hartley, Romans, whatever, that were around a lot, lot longer before my dad and I, that they really are the old school car guys and respect to those guys as well. But for us, it was, okay, well, how do we, how can we be involved in a lot of that marketplace consistently and, and, and how... Can we make it work to our advantage? So I had, to, going back to this chap in Tunbridge, he had this this um, this Porsche, this 996, and I ended up um, he, he, getting into this conversation with him. He said, I actually want to get a 997 Turbo, but Porsche Tunbridge have only offered me, you know, X for my car, it's like 50K or something. And I remember was, while well, I was on the phone to him, I went on Auto Trader and Piston Heads, and I can see these cars up for like 75 grand. And I just said to him, well, you know, I'll, I'll sell it for you. What will you charge? Whatever it was we charged back then, 5% or 2.5% or whatever. And I said to him, "Have you? who have you spoken to about your new car? He said, well, Porsche Tunbridge, that's it. And I said, are they giving you any discount or anything? No, 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 no. So... I ended up speaking to one of the Porsche dealers that we had bought a car from before or something, maybe a part exchange out of them. It will come to me in a minute, maybe um, East London or something. And I just called the sales manager and said, look, you know, got the situation, selling this chap's turbo, wants a 997. This guy said to me, okay, 
if he wants to place a new order, it's whatever, but I'll give him like 5% off, right? I've got a physical car. It's unregistered, whatever. He can have it. And I'll give him, it was like 18 grand off. So I found the customer and just said, look, this is a situation. I can get this car at whatever. And, and I'm going to put some profit on that for me and my dad. And he was like, yeah, let's just do it. So it ended up, he paid a deposit on the 997. In the meantime, I had someone to buy his 996 at much, much more than the Porsche dealer had offered him. We ended up charging him the commission on the, the 996. And then we invoiced the Porsche garage for a commission on the, the new car. This guy was over the moon. He worked for, I think it was ICAP, one of the, the shipping firms in the city. And then we found this snowball effect because, of course, he went in. Yeah, I've just bought this new turbo. You need to use these guys. And yeah, it was like, yeah. for us then, it just started to grow quickly. Yeah. yeah. And I ended up um, dealing with footballers, whatever, because then you start mixing in different circles, you get introduced to different people. Um, a friend of mine was playing Premier League football at that time, ended up looking after his cars for him not ripping him off because a lot of the footballers were getting ripped off. Then he's introducing me to more guys. It, it, you had, it had this kind of like this, this snowballing. But the interesting thing is while this was all going on, we were starting to get attention from guys overseas that were looking on pissing heads for cars. And had this young chap They'd say young is the same age as me, but at the time, phoned me and he'd started this business in Thailand. And he was like, look, you know, I need some help. Can you help me source cars, whatever? So we ended up having this working relationship, helping him source cars. And it was him really that said to me, look, I want to work with a boutique brand. I want to represent a boutique brand in that market because the market is very buoyant. There's lots of people asking different questions. They want something different. Because in Thailand, you bring a car in from overseas, the import duty is 328%. And these cars Whoa. are worth absolute fortunes. They're worth absolute fortunes. But again, for them, it's such a huge deal. If they really are going to spend all that money on a Porsche, he's thinking, well, what can I do that's different? He's very entrepreneurial. So he said, oh, I'm thinking about approaching 9FF, Tech Arts Taken. And I said, what about Roof? Because for me, that's the, it was just there straight away, you know, because I just grew up with it. Okay. I mean, we had actually had some dealings with them anyway. And we ended up setting up this meeting. Again, that snowboard, he ended up being roof in Thailand. And then our relationship with the roofs strengthened the bond. I was giving them business anyway through other customers that were approaching me that, that had cars that wanted things doing. Fast forward to 2016, uh, they didn't have a representative in the UK then. Um, and it was a conversation between um, Estonia Roof and I initially. And we, they decided, they said, look, we want you and your dad to, to take care of it because we trust you guys. You're, you know, we've known you for so long. Um, so really, that was a real privilege and an honor for me and my dad, but but for me, I think because it was a bit of a wow, like how did I get to here? You know, and it isn't it isn't something that you, you, you ever think is going to happen, but it did. Um, 
and I think again it comes down to relationships and and okay I guess maybe how you're perceived as well because people need to trust you they need to know that you're going to look after their brand because you're representing them that was another thing you know my dad and I said listen we we will work as an extension of you we're not going to be Mark and Richard you know limited trading as roof we we work as an extension of them so we we have a very transparent relationship any clients we get here go to Pfaffenhausen meet them they're handed over we we are we're helping them find the right customers in the UK and they've built some really great relationships now because of that um and you know they they seem to be happy with with how we work we're happy with how they work um so i think it's now for us is 2022 obviously it's been a while <laughs> and it's just going to really see how it unfolds the next the next 5 years decade um we've got plans as well so we we've got some ideas um yeah we just want to want to want to grow things now and kick on after covid yeah, um, yeah you can't can't wait forever obviously but really for us 2022 now is like okay we feel like we're work, we're through yeah the worst of it, that that, that story on. about uh, the guy or those people who were buying cars that seemingly may not have been able to afford it or whatever it was right um at at that point in time um did you ever think oh god like we are going to be in trouble as a as a as a company or was it more of a like a, a kind of a, a decision that look actually you know what there's just more opportunity here and and in, in terms of the 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 car brokerage thing how do you kind of see it at that point in time I don't think we ever felt that we were doing anything wrong because ultimately the decision lay with the finance company, the financier, right? So now if you apply for a mortgage or obviously everything is extremely, is much harder now to get a mortgage and stuff. People used to be able to self-certificate. So you would go to the bank, you'd say, look, this is what I'm going to earn next year as a self-employed person. They'd say, sure, I have a million pounds. Now, as a self-employed person, I can tell you it's extremely difficult. And there's a lot of other people that will agree with me on that. But I think, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really feel any obligation because ultimately it's their decision. These were all adults. Um, you know, if your friend went and spent a million pound on a Richard Mill watch and you're, you're like, what, what are you doing? You know, and they, they financed it up to the eyeballs and they're paying 20,000 pound a month. And you're like, well, you're only earning 3000 pounds a month. How the hell that, you know, you can advise, but ultimately because then the practice was different. It was just a case of, okay, well, we put the finance proposal through because the customer would fill that in. It would be faxed off back then, not even emailed. And you'd get an, you'd get a decision usually within half an hour or an hour, or sometimes it would take longer, depending on what other checks the finance company wanted to run. But it just became so incredibly easy. And and again, I, I you know, my dad and I sitting there in the office yeah, like, yeah. well, nobody seems to be getting rejected. No, You know, traditionally yeah, yeah. people that, again, this isn't any disrespect to anybody, but traditionally people that you would say, not sure they should be buying a hundred thousand pound Lamborghini, but again, it was the prerogative of the finance company. I know now that shifted. It shifted. They put a lot more onus on the dealers as well. We don't really do any finance uh, deals because, again, a lot of our stuff is overseas or guys that are just 
wealthy enough to say, whatever, I'm just going to pay for it. And then they can do whatever, whatever they want after that. They can go refinance stuff, whatever. But usually my job is just to get them what they want. So it's yeah. find that yeah. asset, then they can do whatever yeah. after that. Yeah. Most you of them guess, are paying I mean, to, 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 to you guys directly. Because I guess it would have been very easy to stay on that path, right? It would have been very easy to kind of continue that. Um, but to make that change towards the brokerage model, um, I guess took quite a bit of bravery and a, a bit of leap of faith, I guess, to some degree. Is that is that is that fair to say? Yeah, it was it was an evolution, I would say, um, in that we we were at that point were still buying some stock, but we were thinking, well, it started to become nonsensical. Because everybody was suffering at that point. Post-2008, for about 18 months, it was very hard for a lot of businesses. But we managed to really grow our business as a family in that period of time, like fantastically well. You know, it was it was an opportunity that came, again, like this COVID thing, from beyond our control. It was just something, it's how do you react to this? Do you say, well, we're just going to keep doing the same thing and hopefully we'll be okay? For some people, in all honesty, that's how they behave because they don't they don't have the foresight or they don't want to change. They just say it will be okay. And to be fair, a lot of those businesses have ridden out recessions before. They've got deep pockets, whatever, they can carry on. We could just see the difference in how people were behaving and how with my dad's background and then my background as I'm growing up and learning things, how we could see this opportunity. And again, through conversations with clients coming back and saying, can you sell my car for me rather than just buy it off me for a trade price? Cause I need back as much as possible morphed into this different, different business. Um, so I, I think again, for us, it was circumstance and taking advantage of an opportunity that we saw because of what was going on externally um and then the other things just built on top of that but it was that decision that changed everything for us a hundred percent it changed everything for us otherwise i don't know if we would still be traditionally running a dealer. maybe we would be you know maybe that would be successful i don't know but our path as a family business went down that road because we made that decision that yeah. was a conscious decision yeah. to change to do it this way instead. Um, I remember, you know, then the, it had a huge, the recession had a huge impact on new car values. So Land Rover were giving 20%, 24% off of brand new Range Rovers and sports and whatever. Aston Martin, um, I remember HWM Aston Martin, who ironically I now live really close to in Surrey. They, sent us through a list of stock cars or cars that they had been built at the factory that were, were due to come to them. And it was just, guys, can you help? Can you just do what you need? And I remember wh what we did is we were running adverts with these new Aston Martins. We were using Aston Martin dealers, uh, library images. And we were just saying, you know, saving blah, 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 10K off, 20K off. And we must have sold with them well, we sold a lot of cars with them, a lot of new cars. Same with Land Rover as well. We were working with, uh, I think it was Barrett's in Kent and Land Rover. And it was just a case of, guys, can you help? 
And it, it's really interesting because the, the attitude then with the main dealers towards the smaller independent guys was, I would say, was friendlier because they figured out ways of helping each other. Yeah. Now it's become very much new dealers, corporate, don't want to know you, not interested. They just want your customer and you can go away. Um, I've had that a lot over the past 18 months in particular. Um, but you know, the business finds a way you end up buying from a different dealer instead. So what? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it, that, that for us is going back to your, your original question is, yeah, that's how we, we got there was also circumstance, but I think reacting, um, but at the same time, forecasting in a way and having the foresight to say, being perceptive and saying, well, okay, we can see this now. This is, this is an opportunity. Who knows how long that opportunity will last? Hey, we're still here. You know, and we, we've yeah. built a different kind of business out of it. And we're representing Roof now because of it. And um, we've got an office in Hong Kong now because of it. Um, you know, I used to spend a lot of time out in, in Southeast Asia until the end of 2019. And there's probably a lot of guys like me that did as well. And it's been hard. The hardest part for me adapting to all of this is not being able to see my friends and customers out there, not being able to sit down with my accountant out there, you know, just not being able to do silly things like, you know, got a customer here. There's a center for sale in Hong Kong. Okay. Normally I would fly out, stand next to the car, check everything, have it in independently inspected anyway, but have this process whereby everything was being taken care of for the customer here. They, they felt safe. I was acquiring the asset for them out there. I knew it was safe because it was dealing with somebody that I could trust, but I'm walking away with keys, paperwork, whatever. And obviously that's had a, that's had a huge effect on, on our business over the past two years. But we've been fortunate in that because we're roof yeah. and whatever we've we've managed in, to pick in up terms the slack. Of, I mean, what's sweat. what's amazing is that despite the many years that your dad and yourself have been have been running, you've kept it as a family business, um, which I think is really amazing. Um, has that been on purpose? Has that just the way it's been? Like, what's what's guided that kind of um, decision? I guess. It's a good question. I think, yes, part of it has been on purpose because, and this, this might seem a little old fashioned, but blood is thick in the water, but also in my industry, there's now a lot of guys like me that I can work with. So there's almost no need for me to go and employ somebody like me at the moment. I mean, that could change. That could change because if my dad wants to retire and he just says, you know what? Screw cars. I'm out then I'll need to do that. And I don't have an issue doing that. But I think for us, the dynamic works well. I don't know what it would be like if we brought an outsider into our business. Because again, if we're father and son and we've got a very close 50-50 stake in the business and we're, we're used to how each other behave, that's another thing, is like if if he's upset or annoyed with something. Or if I'm, you know, the, the thing being a family business you can be horrible to that person. I'm not, I'm not advocating this, but the next day you forget about it. Now, if I take one of my friends that I do business with and we say, right, let's go into this business 50, 50. And we have a big balmy about a deal or a car that can kill a business. So also testament to those guys that have, have business relationships with, 
people that aren't family that that are just friends or whatever or business partners that then they you know they they manage to go through all that because it's hard working with family but you can always be like hey you know about yesterday forget it if it's someone that you know you don't you've never shared a house with you you've never shared whatever with suddenly yeah. you react like that yeah. is how do they perceive that situation they might yeah. say you know what? i never yeah. want to speak to you again you know <laughs> there, there's there's arguments i've had with my dad i'm sure he'd say the same thing as me where it, it's it sounds it must to other people sound bloody awful but you know because your family you just kind of suck beautiful. it up and I think, get on I with think, it and I think, you move uh, on i mean because because it got one of Either way is right. You know, you, you start business with family or your partner, or whatever, and it can either cause a massive rift in the marriage or in the relationship or whatever, or it can actually lead to an amazing, beautiful cooperation and partnership. And I guess, I mean, for, for those that are, I mean, I'm, 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 I am looking at the time, but I do want to go into just, just, just a little bit. Um, how have you managed to create this relationship whereby, you know, um, you, you, you work strongly with your dad um, and it's, it's led to so many successful, you know, ventures and opportunities and everything else, but still maintain that kind of family bond? Have you found that quite hard or has it been, has it been quite, qu- quite, quite natural and easy for you guys? I think because I always had, relationship with my dad growing up where we weren't it wasn't like a traditional father and son like go to go to the pub together or you know like a lot of people in the uk do right i'm going to the pub with my dad or like i'm I'm going to watch rugby or football or, or whatever cricket with my dad never really had that i think because i was always interested in what my dad was doing like for work and i remember even when when he was um working as a consultant in the IT business. And I remember going with him to trade shows and like E3 or not, e, not E3. I think that was the one in the States, but the one they used to have in the UK. Um, and I remember going to him with these places, going to see some of his clients and being like, wow, you know, this is all like big business and, and this kind of thing. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I have a, I have a good personal relationship with my dad. I think you have to have that anyway. Uh, a good level of respect, um, which is important as well. Um, and try not to bring any family stuff into the day-to-day dynamic of working. I think what's what's good for us now is because we, particularly the past two years, have not really been sharing an office space together much. We'll try and catch up physically on average once a week out of a year. But it's more going over some things, you know, maybe, I don't know, if, if there's something important that I need to sign or whatever. And that's nice. Grab a coffee, whatever. Catch There will be a, a personal element of catching up in that. But it's that's nicer because it's more relaxed. And I think now, like, if I, if I go for dinner with him or whatever outside of work, we actually don't talk about work. And is that, which is, is taken this long. Is that, is it's that taken this long. That you've kind of had in place um i think it's just a natural progression because we used to talk about work all the time but i think now it's like when we if we have dinner you know maybe i'll go to his or come to mine or go to a restaurant we just end up talking about rubbish that's going on you know like with nothing to do with work 
And I don't know if it's because, you know, there's other people there or whatever and you, you're more aware of, I don't, they probably don't want to hear about some, somebody we're dealing with and an issue on a car or whatever. They probably don't care. But maybe, maybe that's part of it. But I do think part of it is just the kind of, you can never really turn it off what we're doing. You know, I, I wake up, I have messages pretty much every day, all through the night from guys in New Zealand, wherever now, you know, Hong Kong, Thailand, um, Indonesia, Mark, can you do this? Mark, can you do that? Mark, can you find yourself? And a lot of that now is being pushed onto me rather than my dad. My dad doesn't tend to do the traveling. I tend to do the traveling. Obviously, again, not the past two years, but that's how it works. So I think when we're, when we're in that situation together, it's I'm doing my job, he's doing his job, because we have to talk about it all the time and I think about it all the time, it's hard to switch off. When you're together and you're in that moment and you're eating or whatever, you don't actually want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, as I say, for years as a kid, particularly as a youngster in this industry, I did. I think because I was more obsessed with what was happening. Now I'm more like, okay, obviously I take it seriously and I care what about what I'm doing, but life's too short. You know, life life is too short. I think to just talk about work all the time. Talk about, yeah, yeah. oh my god, what are we doing about this? What are we doing about? You can stress yourself out too much. Yeah, you need a good work life balance, right? Um, otherwise, you'll just be miserable. You'll be miserable. I remember years when, when particularly in the early days, working really, really hard, and just sometimes thinking, why am I doing this? You know, like, um, I love cars, yeah, but you you didn't feel like you were happy in what you're doing, content. And I am now, I am. I Don't get me wrong, I, I still wake up sometimes and I'm like, oh, maybe I should do something else and maybe I should do, which sounds a bit crazy, but I think it's because if you're an ideas person anyway, which I guess I must be to a degree, you're always thinking, well, what else can I be doing that's not what I'm doing already? And that's also quite hard to process sometimes because you can overthink. Yeah. You know, overthinking yeah. is a big problem that, that I've always had. And I know my dad has it where that can stop you from making a decision quickly. Sometimes you just got to just say yes or no. And I, five, six years ago, got into a habit of making that's myself amazing. make a decision that within is, 10 seconds that is, that is phenomenal just, yes. because yeah. people go into being i i fall into it as well this whole analysis paralysis thing you know um but that's so is that is is, is that literally what you do yeah look i'm going to be honest it's it's something that i can't do all the time because you know what in fact that's actually quite tiring because you you're then you're having to make a decision, you know, pretty much instantly because 10 seconds isn't a lot of time. Um, but it did, it helped me get through a period where I was questioning everything. And that's why I did it because I was going through some personal changes with a relationship I was in then, I was selling a property. There was a lot of stress on my plate. And I remember looking into techniques to help myself get out of a funk or a rut or whatever. One of these things I read on one of these websites um, was see if you can make a decision within 10 seconds. What it allows you to do is go with your gut instinct. 
which is actually really what you need to do most of the time anyway, because your intuition is the thing. It's like all of the experience you've had in the past as a kid or whatever, you're keeping parts of information up in your brain somewhere that, you know, relay this information to your body that if you feel uneasy about something, you feel uncomfortable, it's okay to be scared. You know, it's okay sometimes to say, what if I do this and I fail? Sometimes you need to do it. You've got to just say, yeah, I've got to do this. I've got to, I'm going to try it. You know, I, there's times where I've, I've done things in this business where I've been like, well, you know, I'm really getting my name out. I'm really doing this. This could, this could backfire. I could look bad, but then I don't want to get to 70 years old and think, do you know what? I should have, I should have just tried it anyway, because what's the worst that happens? Usually even in the failure, there'll be an opportunity that comes out of that. And the lesson learned from failing is worth more than just constant success because you'll build yeah. your success out of that. When something goes wrong or something out of your control, like the guys now that are struggling because of COVID, you know, that's all I would say. And it, it's just that, okay, the, the, the rubbish stuff that happens, you know, when things go terribly wrong and, and you feel like the world's against you is okay. Try and try and find the, the spirit. You're, you're in a fight and, Use that as well to get yourself out of the situation, figure out, well, okay, maybe there's, you know, if I'd have done this differently or maybe out of that, there's actually an opportunity here now instead. Go with it. Particularly if it's your gut instinct, you've just got to roll with it's, it. That is it's, just golden. It's scary, Absolutely but you've golden. got to do I think, it. I think in that moment when you are in the crap and it, it feels like there's nothing, there's nothing, in, there's, no, there's no light, right? And um, you start to question every step forward as leading to more more badness but in actuality i think what you're saying is the success that comes out of it is a result of taking those steps forward that you then learn as you um as you progress i think, I think people, people often look at you know will look at you and would look at other people who are successful and look at the end product but they don't quite realize the the number of I wouldn't say failures, but the, 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 the series of kind of wrong directions or whatever you want to call them to get to where you are is such a good point. Um, Mark asked to every single person who comes on the podcast and it's amazing to hear them, uh, when they answer this question on a more lighter note, uh, what does, uh, what does Mark's five car dream garage look like? I always get asked this and it's funny because I did a podcast with a friend. Sam Morse is a good, he's a really nice guy. He's a car collector. He's got a, a YouTube channel and podcast that he's doing. Um, and I think he asked me the same question. But yeah, I, I would say uh, you need something in there that's that's practical, right? My 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 go to kind of all bases car, probably a Range Rover. Um, you want a car? I think that you can take to if you're going to go to a supermarket or drive in central London it's probably a mini um then I think probably as an all-rounder Porsche 911 then as a you see if you just just said five I know you probably did say five dream cars but I'm thinking about just an ideal five car garage that yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah, just say yeah. okay right so then it would probably be something stupid you know, some something that's just people are just like, what? You know, <laughs> it's probably something like Pagani Zonda. And then, of course, I'd have to have a roof, probably a CTR2, which is my favorite, uh, which we've actually got one for sale at the moment. And yeah, to me, it's like, 
a lot of people, the yellow bird is their poster car. For me, it's CTR2. Just because it's the the, the mid to late 90s, 993 base. 903 is my favorite generation of uh, 911. So for me, it's like, yeah, CTR2. That's it. I think that's fine. <laughs> that's amazing. And it was, the, it was the Porsche 911, was it as well? Yeah, I think the, the thing that Porsche have managed to achieve very well with the 911 is the consistency of it of, of it being such a practical car to use daily um because obviously if you look at the other brands like ferrari lamborghini you know that you would argue are kind of in that sector porsche is still kind of in its own because you could take bmw mercedes take some of their higher profile models and there's this kind of like mix but the 911 kind of does a bit of everything particularly if you just said well you know i'm gonna have a 4s for example which isn't too fast it's not it's not I mean, they are expensive cars now. Don't get me wrong. They've got a hell of a lot more expensive than they used to be. And they are bigger. But I still think that it kind of covers all the bases. It's a good-looking sports car. It's quick, relatively economical. It's not ex- extremely expensive to maintain as well. Um, and it's it's a good, capable car to drive. So that would probably be why. And a Mini, you couldn't just have a regular Mini. You'd have to have like a Cooper Works, JCW, (laughs) (laughs) crazy or a GP or something. Um, Yeah, and I think if you just have like just a, I mean, now obviously no one really buys diesel, but maybe a diesel hybrid Range Rover that kind of, if you've got kids or a family, dogs, just chuck it all in the back. I know a lot of people would say on RS6, but RS6 is not an SUV and it is actually quite an expensive car to run. Um, but yeah, I, I think you know, as a five car garage, well, need deep pockets, fair play. But, fair play. Hey, uh, yeah, just finally, uh, those who want to find out more about you, find out more about Roof, uh, where can they find more information? Okay, so our website is roofautomobile.co.uk. Um, our social media is well f- for Roof on Instagram. And Facebook, I believe Facebook is Roof Automobile UK, all one word. The social for Roof in the UK is Roof Roof Automobile UK. So there's some consistency here. So that's Instagram, Facebook, the website. My personal one is Mark underscore the car spy. So the car spy, all one word. And again, that's because that's the name of our original business that is still going. We still help clients all over the world um, buy and sell their cars. Um, yeah, so that's Mark, me. Thank you so much for your very valuable time on the podcast. And uh, honestly, it's been, it's been so, so useful for me, uh, genuinely, uh, who's you know, looking to, to, to grow and develop and, 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 and uh, realize new things and looking to other, other areas of work. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, we look forward to seeing where Ruth goes and uh, where, where you and your dad go as well. So thank you very much.